Welcome back to another good one here on Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. I geek out on today's episode, and let me tell you why. Several years ago, I realized the power of experiences. Now, I've always deeply and innately known how powerful it is to be together in an experience, maybe food you'll never forget. Maybe it's climbing a mountain that you will never forget. Maybe you did something together that you laughed and it just connected you in a way that you will never forget. And I began to realize how powerful those moments were, simultaneously realizing, sometimes discouraged by the fact that information that I was teaching or I was writing or I was even preaching was not sticking. And what I realized is that information doesn't have the power to rewire the brain but experiences do. As I began to go to conferences more and more, I realized this is good, but I just can't take it all in. I don't know if you've ever had post-conference depression where you take it all in and you realize I just can't go back and transfer this to my team. It was good, but ultimately it wasn't changing lives like I had hoped, like I had imagined my life or other lives. And so I realized we're actually gonna have to create experiences, not just information, transfers. Again, nothing wrong with those things. They are just incomplete. Experiences are powerful. We began to shift our modes and our models and our venues. We began to provide experiences, curate experiences. We began to host our own experiences where we refresh and replenish leaders, teach them some coaching frameworks, and they would leave and they would remember those relationships, those moments, those meals, literally forever. And I began to realize that we need more of this and we need language for this. And in my search for language for this, I found some great books. Jesse Cole has been on the podcast before, Find Your Yellow Tux, The Power of Moments by the Heath Brothers. But I ran into a book and it has changed my life and it's called The Experience Economy. And this was originally written in 1999. It just did an updated version 20 years later in 2019. And I, uh, today, interview one of the authors of that, and this is Joe Pine. Now, Joe does a lot of consulting around this idea, but literally helps organizations and businesses turn not just from commodities, not just from services, but into experiential spaces and offerings in what he calls the experience economy. Fascinating conversation, so much to teach, very different for business leaders, nonprofit leaders, and church leaders. But I want to invite you into this conversation. We have so much to learn. And this is something that I am dedicating much of the rest of my life to creating meaningful experiences that change, transform, and move people. And I think you should too. This has a lot to teach. Enjoy my conversation with consultant, writer, and ultimately experience economy connoisseur, Joe Pine. Well, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, and I can just tell you, man, this is one of those books that I've been recommending people read ever since I read it. I don't know where it was hiding uh, all these years, but the experience economy, <laughs> I can honestly say both affirmed what we've been doing and just blew me away that this is something that that I would say almost prophetically, you guys are calling, writing about in the Harvard Business Review, original version came out in 99. And man, I just thought this is written for this moment. And so, uh, you know, congrats on a message that that really has impacted a lot of lives. I know you do a lot of work around this. You're not just a writer, um, Joe, but what led you up to this study of the experience economy and then eventually writing this book? 
I, I got a kick out of, out of about using the word prophetically because you know, my partner Jim Gilmore and I like to say that we're not futurists. We don't tell you what's going to happen. We tell you what is happening, but you don't yet see it. Oh, okay. And it uh, and the experience economy came out of my original book. My first book when I worked for IBM way back when was called Mass Customization, and which is about efficiently serving customers uniquely. You know, giving everybody exactly what they want at a price they're willing to pay. And what I realized is that if you customize a good, you automatically turn it into a service. That you're you're in the business of helping a customer design uh, exactly the good that they the, that they need, uh, and then you make it and then you deliver it to them on an individual basis, right? And that's how you define a service that that, that they are um, um, customized for each person and and uh, inventory uh, and not inventoried after production, but delivered on demand. And then so. Then I discovered, well, what happens when you customize a service? What happens when you design a service that is so appropriate for this particular person, exactly the service that they need at this moment in time? And, and, and then you can't help but, but make them go wow and turn it into a memorable event, turn it into an experience. So, so the key thesis of the, of the experience economy, uh, which a lot of readers actually don't get, you know, particularly if you look at the whole CX movement, which doesn't quite get it, but the whole thesis is that, in fact, experiences are a distinct economic offering, as distinct from services as services are from goods. And basically, when you use goods as props and services as a, as the stage to engage each and every individual uh, in an inherently personal way that creates a memory, which is the hallmark of the experience. So, so that's that's where it came from. And so if you have experiences as a distinct economic offering, you would have an economy based off of experiences. And in 1999 and, and 98, when we did the Harvard Business Review article and a few publications before that, we talked about the forthcoming experience economy, the nascent experience economy. You, know, you could see that it was happening. It would become more predominant. But now, uh, you know, well into the 21st century, it's obviously that that economy is here, that that we're in an experience economy where experiences have become the predominant economic offering, where people want goods and services to be commoditized so they can spend their hard-earned money and their hard-earned time on the experiences that they value. Man, well, a, a little bit of background here, Joe, and, and even to the listeners, a few years ago, I realized that the conference model is dying because I found myself in talks with people, eating tacos, having conversation away from the, you know, quote unquote, conference conversation that we were going to have. And the best conversations we're having, you know, outside of that, they're usually in beautiful places. We're sitting under a palm tree. We're at the beach. (laughs) We're at a taco restaurant. And the best part of conferences was not what the conference was selling, but was the side experience that we had created. And so we began to kind of intentionally hack those and of course, I mean, the conference model to many has gone down the toilet this last year of COVID in many ways. Not that it's never going to exist. You know, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but we made a huge shift into experiences, which ended up being smaller, more intimate, incredibly memorable. And so as I read the book, it explained the shift that we had been making and you guys put it into words. So, so, so grateful for the book. Um, and so as I'm listening to it on audio, I thought, man, I got to get one of these guys on the podcast. So here we are today. I want to expose uh, your incredible work to our audience. Um, The subtitle of the experience economy, work is theater, every business is a stage. Tell me more. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's, it's a fundamental thing that, that, you know, what is the economic function of experiences? You know, you, 
you extract commodities out of the ground, the basis of the agrarian economy, you make or manufacture goods, you deliver or provide services, what's the economic function of experiences? And we realized that it is staging. You know, we thought about orchestrating, choreographing, words like that, but staging is the best one because what staging means is that you design all of the elements in a particular intentional way to create impressions in your audience, right? That's what staging is. And, uh, and that's what you gotta do with an experience. You have to design, you have to think of everything. You're not, you can't let things intrude and, and uh, be at odds with what you're trying to accomplish. It's gotta be a cohesive experience that hangs together because of the intentionality that you bring to it. And so once we recognize that, well, if staging is the right word, then, then work must be theater. And, 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 and we do mean that, that work is theater. It's not a metaphor. We don't mean work as theater. We literally mean work is theater, that whatever workers are in front of customers or the, the guests of the experience would be the, the, the proper word, then they're on stage and they need to act in a way that engages that audience, engages those guests uh, and creates that experience within them. So, so we actually dedicate three chapters in the book to the, the, the topic of theater, going in depth into, into why it's theater, what the principles of acting are, uh, uh, what uh, roles people need to play, the different types of theater and so forth, uh, because it's so crucially important that, that if, you, if you don't direct your workers to act, right, then you're not going to get the, the intentional experience that you, that you want. So every business is a stage. Mm, that's good. So what is at stake here? What if an organization uh, puts their head in the sand and ignores <laughs> experience? What are the consequences? Well, it's like, it's like every every book I write, there's a bo- bogeyman, right? That that you go against. And with experience coming, what it is is commoditization, right? Commoditization is the bogeyman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what happens if you put your head in the sand. It doesn't mean that your business will go away. It doesn't mean that you're forced to shift up this progression of economic value, as we call it, to stage and experience. But it does mean that over time, if you don't, you will become a commodity which means people buy you basically based off a price. You're undifferentiated. And so they could just as easily buy somebody else as you. And, and whenever an industry commoditizes, you know, there, there are usually one or two companies that can still make a lot of money because they figure out how to do everything most efficiently. They, they get rid of as many people as possible. They um, automate as much as possible, but everybody else is sort of left with, uh, with the table scraps. And so that's where you need to consider that opportunity to avoid that commoditization by shifting up and staging experiences by going to the next level of of economic value. So I'm curious, you had 20 years between or 21 years between the original and now the updated, completely expanded version that released in 2020. What changed in the last 20 years? So number one, what's changed is what I talked about before, that it used to be a forthcoming, a nascent experience economy, and now it's here. And then secondly, has been this explosion of, of experiences. Uh, we, we did this launch fest event, we called it for the 2020 re-release of the experience economy, where we, we, we just for fun, we went and looked at all these strange experiences that, and, and did it from A to Z, you know, beginning with A, the letter A, then beginning with B and put together this whole thing. Uh, and, and what it means is that everybody's getting into the experience business. You know, manufacturers are in the experience business, retailers are in the experience business, restaurants are in the experience business, hotels are in the experience business, and so on and so forth. There, there's hardly a sector of the economy that it hasn't touched. 
And that means that that uh, long held experience stagers, you know, like think about uh, 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 concerts and plays and sporting events, movies um, uh, and so forth are, are, are now have this tremendous amount of competition that they didn't have before. And it is all the competition for, as we say in the, the subtitle of the, of the re-release of the book, it's compete for customer time, attention, and money. Right, so everybody's competing against everybody else for customer time, attention, and money, and so the the bar's been raised for how great an experience that you have. The other huge thing, you know, very related to that, is the explosion of digital experiences. The fact that we now have smartphones that didn't exist in 1999 that allows us to drop down and have an experience wherever we are, whether we're waiting in line, uh, whether we're trying to kill a few minutes between meetings whether we're actually in a supposed experience, but it's not engaging enough. So we say, okay, let me check my email. Let me go out on YouTube. Let me go do all these other things. Uh, plus the, the, the te digital technology that's come online from virtual reality to augmented reality uh, to all these other ways of doing things that are basically impossible in real life. One of my other books is called Infinite Possibility, Creating Customer Value on the Digital Frontier. And so it is all about how do we use digital technology to fuse the real and the virtual? And I think that's the other uh, big thing that has, that has changed uh, since then. Well, yeah, I was uh, watching my two sons together play Pokemon Go, which I yeah. thought that was years ago. Didn't know that was still around. Apparently it, <laughs> it's back. And uh, watching them play, and you're in real places with this phone in your hand leading you along the way which of course I love because they're actually out getting exercise. They're not just playing video games. Yep. Uh, and, and so it's beautiful to see some of those ways. I'm, I need to pick up that book. I'm fascinated by how those come together. And of course this year, um, or at least in 2020, as COVID hit, we had to say, can you still do a powerful experience, conference, summit, gathering, workplace, all of that? What shifted in the experience economy when COVID hit? Well, the, the, the big thing, of course, is that, uh, is that we have a huge hiatus in uh, physical experiences because any place that uh, people want to gather to experience is not a place anybody should be right now. So, um, so the difficulty of being able to um, uh, get people together, the, the lockdowns that have happened means that you know, the death of a lot of experience stagers, particularly what I'll call mom and pop shops, uh, you know, family entertainment centers and so forth, and they don't have the means to be able to uh, weather this storm. Uh, but at the same time, it means the huge growth in digital experiences. And so we've gone from, from the physical to the digital, from out there to in here, from the, the uh, communal and social to the familial and the experiences that we have, but they haven't gone away. You know, the explosion in um, uh, Zoom conferencing and other ways of meeting together like we're using right now, Alan, uh, the explosion of streaming services, Netflix and Disney Plus and so on and, and so forth, the explosion in, in video games and website experiences, right? That All that is because people crave experiences. We're experience-seeking machines. And so we're going to want to have those experiences any way we can. And so there have been some articles out there that talk about the death of the experience economy and so forth. But, but that's not true either, because we still crave those physical experiences. We still crave being with other people. We are social beings as well. And we want to have those, those social and communal experiences. 
And so there's tremendous pent up demand for that. You know, whenever, whenever someplace opens, uh, whether it's a theme park or a restaurant, a bar, uh, whatever it might be, that the, it may only be 25% capacity or 50% capacity, but immediately it's filled to that capacity because people want to want to have those. So, so it's not the death of the experience economy, because as we've been saying for over 20 years now, uh, goods and services are no longer enough. They're, they're no longer enough to avoid commoditization on an individual company basis. They're no longer enough to support the entire economy. You have to have that experience sector of the economy. And so it will come roaring back once we get herd immunity through vaccines. Uh, there'll always be some people who are gonna be more reticent, uh, but the pent up demand uh, is going to be there. And, uh, and that will yield finally the full recovery of the economy once we bring that full experience sector back. So I'm talking a lot about attention economy with people recently, people fighting for you know our ears, our eyeballs, even you know our hearts and our focus. And then of course the experience economy that we're talking about how is the attention economy tied together with the experience economy? Yeah, well, you know, you can, you, you can consider this a procreal view because we wrote the book, The Experience Economy, not the book, The Attention Economy. I think uh-huh. there's a couple of books on, on that. But sure. uh, in our view, attention is not an economy because attention is not an economic offering, right? Experiences are a distinct economic offering. Therefore, you have an economy based off of them, just like you have the service economy based off services the industrial economy based off goods and the agrarian economy based off commodities. But intention is a crucial factor because again, it's, it's time, attention, and money um, that are the three currencies of the experience economy. They're, they're what people are trading for. They're trading their time, they're trading their attention for the experience that they have. And obviously like every economic offering, they give money uh, for that experience. You don't give money just for attention. You give money for the entire experience that, that people are creating for you. So it is a, a crucial factor. You've got to gain people's attention. And if they're, if, they, if some other company has created some other experience where they're spending their time with that company, giving their undivided attention to that company, then guess what? They're not spending time and attention with you. And that's why you now compete against the world for these three currencies. Mm. You talk about cost. I found that fascinating. Uh, and, and you say companies should charge based on value they add not cost they incur. Why is this a crucial shift? Well, I mean, that's that's the way that's the way it's always been. The companies, you know, the men in the industrial economy, companies would often uh, charge cost plus, right? Well, here's their cost, so we just have to market up enough that we make a decent profit. You know, ignoring the fact, well, sometimes what you market up for is more than than, than most people are willing to play, pay because it doesn't give them enough value, and so that product isn't going to work. And other times you're leaving money on the table because it provides much more value. You know, pure economically, um, if, a, if, a, if, a comp, if a person, whether a consumer or even a business person in a B2B case, if they are willing to part with their money in their pocket for your offering, then guess what? Your offering is worth more than that amount of money, right? It's not just an even trade. They say, okay, this is going to be better than the money I have, so I'm going to buy it. Sure. And so that's so economically, that's always the case. The difference in the experience economy is is to understand that you are what you charge for. And and if you charge for undifferentiated stuff, you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities your people perform, you're in the services business. But economically, you're in the experience business if and only if you charge for time. Right. That's what's different. That's the value because that's the value that you're providing. Services are about time well saved. You know, do it better than I can, do it quicker than I can, save my time again so I can spend that time 
on the experiences that I, that I value, which provide time well spent. So that's what people are buying from you and experiences time well spent. And you wouldn't imagine going to a, a sporting event or to a concert, a play, a movie um, um, without paying an admission fee, right? Why? Because you recognize them as experiences. And so, and so that's a, it, it, it sends a signal that this is a place worth experiencing as well as gives you the wherewithal to be able to create a great experience. So that's why we see, uh, we see scores, hundreds of companies getting into the charging for time business that you never thought possible, like retailers, again, like restaurants, manufacturers creating flagship places like the, the Heineken experience in Amsterdam, the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin, the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta, and so on and so on. Uh, all these companies recognize that, that um, uh, they're in the experience business, therefore they need to charge for the time that customers spend with them, that time well spent. I get a lot of questions. Um, I coach leaders who are business leaders, nonprofit leaders, and church leaders, very different contexts. I'm curious, yes. which of these principles do you feel like carry over to nonprofits and churches? And which of these principles you feel like is there not as clear of a carryover to nonprofits and churches? Well, and I, I, I think that I think those are two very different groups, nonprofits and churches. Uh, nonprofits number one, are still businesses and should think of themselves as businesses. The only reason they're called nonprofits is something called the tax code. Uh, and, and they need not to design for the tax code that they still need to create revenue. They still need to get um, uh, money in to be able to pay all the expenses that they have. Yeah. I, um, you know, they may come through donations, but, but in many nonprofits, it is through the economic offerings that they provide. Uh, my dad worked for a nonprofit many decades ago, and I still remember him telling me that there is no more profit-conscious company he ever worked for than the nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know, they had to cover it. So, so all the principles apply at least in terms of economic offerings, but also you can think of, let's say, the donor experience, and recognize that uh, that uh, you need to create an experience for your donors that will get them to give revenue to you. That, that in the experience economy, a basic principle I talk with businesses over the world about is that the experience is the marketing, that the best way to generate demand for your offering is with an experience so engaging that customers can't help but spend their time with you, give you their attention, and then um, uh, spend their money as a result by buying your offering. Well, in a nonprofit case, it's simply spend their money by donating it to you is something that you want to have uh, as well. Um, with churches... I'm more I'm more wary about this for the the, the simple um, um, reason that when you think about worshiping God that we do as Christians uh, is that that worshiping God God is the audience of worship therefore we are not the audience of worship in the pews right in the chairs and therefore if a if a church if the pastor and the and the, and the elder board and that if they um, want to say, okay, we need to use all these techniques to create this great experience. Well, then they're losing sight of the fact of who is the true audience, right? The, the goal is to help people worship God through reading scripture, through songs, through uh, sermons, and so forth, and not about giving them an, an, an over-the-top experience that makes them feel good, you know, so to speak. Um, that isn't to say, though, that if you look at it Societal-wise, that, you know, that that people today do have other options about how they spend their time, their attention, and their money, and they often uh, will, in fact, uh, look at a church and say it's not competitive to that. But then you've got to wonder, 
um, is what's their motivation, right? Because then their sure. motivation is one of of wanting experiences out of church again instead of the worship and glorification of God, which which is what our motivation needs to be. Yeah, I appreciate that, Joe. And I think, you know, anyone listening, take this with discernment like anything and to say, how mm-hmm. does this fit within our context? And it's very unique um, context is not a performance. And that's that's challenging for sure. Uh, right. So thank you for that. Um, take me inside of your consulting. What are you looking for in an organization? And then how do you help them? Well, so so a lot of what I do is uh, speeches to energize people, to open up their eyes, to get them to see what's, what's, what's out there, what the possibilities are. And often a particular executive or group within a, a company will bring me in to, to uh, let the rest of the organization understand what they already do, which is that, they're, uh, that they need to shift into experiences or need to stage a better experience than, than what they already do. Then often I do a lot of workshops with companies to take them through the, the frameworks, take them through a set of, of, of exemplars, as well as the ideas and principles to be able then um, work together to, to develop ideas about what they should do differently, right? To come up with a set of ideas that really changed their business. Uh, and, um, uh, and, then, uh, and then I will do some ongoing consulting with companies to go into more depth, to provide um, uh, reviews of what they're coming up with, to experience the products, to help them write about it. Uh, one recent client, you know, one of the keys with an experience is that you need to have a theme. You know, think about theme restaurants, theme parks, and so forth. Doesn't have to be as in your face as theme restaurants. Doesn't have to be a fantasy like theme parks, but it's simply the organizing principle of the experience. Well, when that theme encompasses the entire organization, what it really becomes is the purpose of the organization, the meaningful purpose, right? The intention again is a key word. And uh, and so I worked with a company recently to sort of uncover from their heritage, from where they are today, from where they want to go, what is the meaningful purpose of the company? And in workshop mode, help them figure out what that is. And then I wrote a uh, a page or two of prose for them that that became a declaration. And that declaration puts meat on the bones and provides the basis of the proposition to which they must ascend. And that everybody in the organization, you have to ascend to, to this meaningful purpose. And so that's, that's work that, uh, that I love to do. And I'm working with them on an ongoing basis and, and doing continuing workshops with them, uh, working with their head of strategy and head of marketing uh, and so forth. Mm. Uh, Joe, take me into one of your favorite examples of an experiential organization or a particular experience. What's happening there and, and why does it surprise and delight you? Oh wow! So that so yeah. What experience do I want to do? I want to pick. Take I'll, us into one of your favorites. I know you've seen thousands, but what what what's one of your right? Top so ones? I'll give you I'll give you my current favorite. You know, at, at we we ran our own events called Think About uh, for twenty years, and then we we decided to to um, uh, pre COVID, but we just decided you know that it was time to sort of to to take that and put it in the can after twenty years. But for those twenty years, we gave out an experience stager of the year award called an XP award. And the last one we gave out in 2017, I'll mention, is one of my favorite clients of all time because they've actually done more than uh, almost any other client. And that's Carnival Corporation. And uh, Carnival Corporation Cruise Company is, you know, is obviously dead in the water right now. It's, that's probably a bad choice of words. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, uh, what they created and what they're continuing to work on while, while things are quiesced as far as the business goes is this program they call the Ocean Medallion. 
And the Ocean Medallion is an IoT device, you know, about the size of a quarter, Internet of Things, that allows them to communicate uh, with the shipboard cloud that they have. And what it enables them to do is to mass customize the experience, and as well as all the goods and services on ship and, and, and maybe eventually off ship for each individual guest. So when you... Um, when you first book a cruise, they, they started this on the Princess Cruise Line. So if you book a Princess Cruise, um, they ask you for the set of preferences of what you'd like to do on your cruise. They ask you to take a picture or scan in your passport and upload that so we can, we can make sure it's valid passport at least six months after your cruise. So you're ocean ready, as they call it. And then they send you this medallion. And it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful little device. It's got your name laser etched on it, as well as the dates of your cruise and your muster point. And then um, they ask you to bring that along with you. And so you, as you go through the, the building that they redesigned, it's not, a, it's not a dirty, dusty, hot building anymore. It's a beautiful pre-show for the, the cruise experience. Uh, and you never have to show your passport. You just walk at a leisurely place all the way through there up onto the gangplank. And when you get there, a Carnival employee will have a tablet. And when you get within range with your, your ocean medallion, up pops your picture your name and a check mark that says you're ocean ready. So wow. they can welcome you on board by name. Brilliant. The ocean medallion gets tracked as you go through. And as you get close to your stateroom door, it gets ready. So when you touch the door handle, uh, it closes the electric circuit. It unlocks, you open the door and the room greets you by name. Wow. And then they begin to look at all the things you like to do. They look at where do you like to spend your time? Uh, and if you if you spend more time in a particular experience than most people, they 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 they'll presume that you that's time well spent for you. If it's less, then maybe it's not as, as well time well spent. And they offer personal experience invitations to 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 see what you like to do, so that they develop a customized itinerary for you. That if you go a second or third time, gets even better. And they can even remember things to to mass customize the whole experience. They can even remember things like when you're on the pool deck with your kids. Your favorite drink is an iced tea with no lemon. When you're in the bar with your buddies, it's a mojito. And when you're in the restaurant with your spouse, it's a glass of Shiraz. <laughs> so they understand the digital context of, of, of who you are, of what you want right now, and can, can presciently offer you exactly what you're, you're going to want. Wow. And so it's just a great example of bringing together all the principles that we talk about to create an, an, an amazing experience for cruise guests. Wow. As you say that, I think my side quest in life became to get you to consult with TSA. Like if you could <laughs> make that happen with TSA, Joe, we would all be so happy. We would cheer you on. We would share to the ends of the earth because yeah. <laughs> whenever you describe a good experience in the book, uh, I think about 10 bad experiences. I think about uh, USPS, right. Postal Service. I think about how it's bad for employees. I think about how it's bad for people that walk in. I think the lack of value that's presented there and the, the opposite, how much value they're valuing your time and that you don't have to reshare things again. So helpful. All right, Joe, if you were a young company, let's say you did coaching like we do at Stay Fort Designs. Let's say yep. uh, you help leaders get healthy, reach more impact like we do here. This is yep. the part where I'm trying to get free consulting for a second. <laughs> uh, if you did coaching, what are uh, maybe a couple of ideas, thoughts, or suggestions, how we bring that service in to be more uh, of an experience? Well, so, so one is actually I do do coaching. Uh, we have an ex-coach offering for chief experience officers, CXOs. 
Uh, and, uh, and secondly, because of the business you chose, your own business about coaching that, is that I want you to recognize that if you are a coach, it means you're not merely in the experience business. You're also in the transformation business. Yep. Right. Or more fully in the transformation business. We talk about uh, transformations in the book. It's in chapter nine of the book as the fifth and final economic offering in this progression of economic value. We're using experiences now as the raw material to guide people to change. And because with, with transformations, when people have an aspiration, and they're hiring you to be able to help them achieve that aspiration, whether it's fitness centers by going from flabby to fit or healthcare by going from sick to well or uh, weight loss uh, or, um, uh, you know, or coaching of any stripe, I'll say, and including management consultants, is that you're really, they're hiring you not because they want an experience, but because they want that experience to help them uh, achieve their aspirations. That's what it's really about with, with, transformations, the customer is the product, right? Think about that. Yeah. It doesn't matter all these activities you do if the customer doesn't get the aspiration that they wanted. Yep. And we only ever change through the experiences that we have. As the saying goes, we're all the product of our experiences. So then you got to, so so the first step is to, is to one, understand who is this particular person that you are coaching. And, and if it's the company that's hiring you, what the, what the company's goals are for that person. And then, and what, and therefore, what do they aspire to become, right? So then you've got this gap from where you are today and what they aspire to become. Then you've got to design the set of experiences, generally not one life transforming experience, but a set of experiences, maybe with some backsliding in there, that, that transforms them from where they are today to where they, they want to be. And then, and then thirdly, though, is you also don't need to, you, you can't stop there. You got to keep going because um, you have to have what we call follow through, All right? Follow through. It's not the same as follow up, which is, hi, how you doing? It's follow through is ensuring that the transformation takes hold. You know, if I go through, for example, a, a, a smoking cessation program and like uh, GlaxoSmithKline has one called My Quit. Uh, where they, they use the Nicorette gum or patch and they fold it into this eight-week transformational program, which gives them a 50% greater likelihood of actually achieving that aspiration. But if at the eight weeks I, I, I quit smoking, but three weeks later I light up again, well, guess what? I wasn't truly transformed. You have to ensure it takes, it takes hold. And, and so you need a level of follow-through uh, with, with people over time. And then the last thing I'll mention is, again, you are what you charge for. Right. So what should you charge for with transformations? Again, it doesn't matter what, what goods and services you provide. You can't charge for those or not only for those. It doesn't matter what experiences they undergo if they don't get that out aspiration. So what you need to charge for is the outcome, the demonstrated outcome that your customers achieve. That's what economically puts you in the transformation business. And now there are more and more companies that are figuring out how in different ways, but more and more companies figuring out how exactly they can do that. Man, that's good. So much to think about there, Joe. Appreciate that. And you coming on today. I'm curious, 2031, 10 years from now, any predictions about where experiences are going in the next 10 years? Well, I think I think you will absolutely see in the next 10 years a level of, of digitally fused experiences that people have been talking about for the last 10 years but haven't yet arrived. You will see people that will be wearing things on their faces that, that, that give them a digital overlay of the world. 
Uh, you will see more and more experiences, like you said, with Pokemon Go, which is which is a genre I call alternate reality, where you have an alternate view of what's going on. You're out there in the real world, but you don't see it the same way they do. Uh, but instead of holding up a phone, it'll be things on your head, so you have your hands free and being able to have that sort of experiences. Um, you know, I think that that's that's clearly a trend uh, that's going to happen. I don't know that virtual reality will ever become a big deal in the home, but where it's a big deal is in purpose-built environments where you can have the the physical place exactly match the virtual experience that you're having. You know, today once you put on virtual reality goggles, you know, you you can't see your surroundings anymore, right? You can put your foot through the TV, your hand through a glass table, you can trip over the furniture you know, all that stuff. And so I think it's more of a, an outbound sort of thing. And, but what also we'll see in 10 years from now is very much of a more focused on transformation where we recognize that, um, that the experiences we have do change us. And, and as the product of the experiences, then we have to be careful about what experiences we have and what experiences we, we therefore forego. And I think there'll be much more of a focus on that as well as a focus on uh, on meaningful experiences and experiences that give our life meaning. Also wrote a book on uh, authenticity that talks about how with the rise of the experience economy came this, this imperative about authenticity, that people desire things to be authentic. Uh, and, and, I, and I believe that with transformations will come, will come meaning as the new consumer sensibility that people will increasingly buy based off of the, that, that they have a, 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 their own purpose aligns with the purpose of the company. And so I think you'll see much more of what we already see now of, of, of what we called in chapter 10 of the book, worldview segmentation. And back in 1999, we used that term, that people will buy from companies that share their own worldview and, uh, and not buy from companies that, that do not fit with that worldview. And you can see that going on a lot now, you know, in the, in the last uh, year or two, particularly since the, the last election. Absolutely. Well, fascinating stuff, Joe. Absolutely have loved this conversation. Folks, pick up a copy of The Experience Economy, the new one released here in 2020. Congrats on that. Where do folks find more out about you, Joe, and what you're up to? Uh, Well, they can LinkedIn with me if they want. Uh, Just search for Joe Pine and LinkedIn. Or our website is www.strategichorizons.com, Strategic Horizons with an S. And there you've got my bio, you've got all our offerings, you've got links to the books, and, uh, and you can learn all you want. We've got a, uh, a post, a blog called Thoughts Post. You reminded me of this earlier in your introduction, where the last Thoughts Post I put out there was on hybrid events, that the way to go is not digital or, virtu- or, or physical, but, but, to, but to fuse them and have hybrid events where you're, you're catering both to the, um, the physical audience and then you have uh, also to the, the virtual audience at the same time. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Joe. Appreciate all your work. All right, Alan. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks.